0: So this morning, we're going to be starting a teaching series in the book of Philippians. Our goal is to teach this entire book um, according to the time that we have together over the next few months. And we're going to begin with Philippians chapter 1 verses 1 through 11. So if you would open up God's Word in your lap, either on your phone or if you brought a Bible, if you're in need of a Bible, we do have Bibles in the back uh, that you are welcome to use and to take home if you do not have one. And so the book of Philippians, it's an interesting book. One of the things that we're going to see as we read this introduction is that Paul has a very special affection for the Philippian church. Paul often started all of his letters in the New Testament with the same kind of formula of a greeting, but yet what you'll notice as we read the text this morning is there's a certain heightened level of affection for the Philippians. It's safe to say that the Philippians might have even been one of Paul's favorite churches. Okay, and uh, some of you may know this, but I come from from a youth ministry background, I have 10 plus years in, in youth ministry prior to pastoring here. Um, and oftentimes, one of the things that students would do, especially if they've come for a while, is they, they'd be curious, and they'd come up to me and say, hey, who's your favorite student? And you know what I would say? It's a tie, you all lose, <laughs> was the joke that I had. But in all honesty, there are times in which in ministry, we love all, we have an affection for all, but sometimes the Lord binds you more closely With others for whatever reason. You know, there are students that I had a privilege of leading to the Lord, and they will forever have a special affection in my heart because of the care that I took in seeing God do some amazing things. There are students that we see grow into maturity and take on leadership after you've spent a lot of time for them. And so there does become a sense of not unhealthy favoritism, but just love and affection for what God is doing in their lives. And I think the same is true for Paul. You know, if youth pastors are allowed to have their favorite, Paul as an apostle is allowed to have a favorite church, or at least a deeper affection for those whom he knows so well. And so our points this morning as we dive into this text is we're going to be looking at the joy that Paul receives from, from this Philippian church. Our three points are going to be Paul's joy came from their conversion, their fellowship that they had in the gospel. Secondly, we'll look at Paul's joy and how it came from their partnership in his work as an apostle and the proclamation of the gospel. And lastly, we'll see Paul's joy come from their continual growth in Christ. And so let us read from Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. If you would and you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of God this morning. You may be seated. And so as you can see, Paul speaks with deep affection for this church and the first reason that we see for this is clearly because of their union with Christ, their shared union with Christ. They're believing in the gospel as brothers and sisters. And so it's, it's good for us to have an understanding of how did the, the church in Philippi start? Why was Paul so connected with this church? And it's because he was part of the genesis of this church, the start of this church. If we were to go back to Acts chapter 16, we would see um, how Paul was sent by God to the Philippians. Paul was preparing for his second missionary journey, and he was hopeful, and his intentions and his plans were to take him deep into the heart of Asia. But yet, as he tried to go there, he was kept from the Lord from going there and redirected towards the Philippian church. We see this in Acts 16.6. It says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And so Paul's plans were being changed according to the will and purposes of God. Acts 16.10 goes on to talk about this, and it says, And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. God spoke to Paul in a dream in which he saw a man begging for him to come and to teach him the gospel. And it was clearly a man from Macedonia. And so if we continue on in verses 11 and 12 in Acts 16, we see that Paul and his, and his crew are faithful to go and be obedient to God. And it says, so that setting sail from Troas, we make a direct voyage to Samothrace and, following, and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a le- leading city of the district Of Macedonia and a Roman colony, and we remained in the city for some days. And so, Paul, according to the will of God, was redirected in really the totally opposite direction of where he had planned to go to preach the good news of the gospel. But yet, it was clear that God was sending them there, and God sent them to Philippi. And this may be one of the reasons why Paul felt a particular affection that this is somewhere in which God miraculously and very clearly sent me to be, to reach these people. And so who were the people that Paul met in Philippi as he began that new church? Well, the first was a woman named Lydia. Comes across her um, singing with a group of women, praises to God. Philippi was a Roman colony, so there wasn't a very strong Jewish present, but yet Lydia and a small group of Jewish women were worshiping um, God by the river, and Paul speaks the good news to them, and they are saved, Lydia in particular, She's converted by the river by Paul with his group of Silas, Luke, and Timothy. And what's interesting is she was a wealthy woman, um, a seller of purple, and she immediately hosted Paul in her home. And it says they stayed there for a number of days, so this wasn't the only person that Paul ministered to. In fact, he would go out through the town preaching the good news, and um, as he was doing that, he was being harassed by what the scriptures say was a demon-possessed girl, a young girl Who was harassing Paul, saying, Yes, he's a messenger of God, but in a way that was distracting from the message. We see this in the life and ministry of Jesus as well that they speak truthfully of who Jesus is and what the gospel is, but they do so in a way that detracts from what they're trying to accomplish. And so Paul kind of gets fed up with it and casts the demon out of the girl. But that causes all sorts of problems from Paul later on because this girl was owned by a particular master who. Um, exploited her for some of these supernatural abilities that she had as a result of this demon within her. And so Paul and his um, group of people doing ministry in this area, they're arrested, they're beaten, and they're thrown in jail. So this girl is rescued from this demon-possessed situation. She likely comes to faith, but as a result, Paul is beaten and thrown in jail. And then here comes another person that Paul ministers to. Some of you may be familiar with the story of the Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas, they're, they're beaten, they're in chains, and it's midnight, and yet they're still praising God in their cells. And God brings an earthquake to open all the doors, to unlock all the chains, and the Roman guard, the Philippian jailer, knows that he's in trouble, because to have your prisoners go free was to mean that you didn't do your job right, and the punishment would be probably a very cruel death. And so this Philippian jailer's prepared to kill himself and Paul calls out, we're all still here. We haven't gone anywhere. And so this Philippian jailer moved by hearing them sing praises, moved by their ability to to just stay and submit to this Roman rule. He asks how he can be saved himself. In a famous group of verses, Acts 17, verses 30 through 31, the Philippian jailer says, then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved and they said believe in the lord jesus and you will be saved you and your household these are some of the conversions that we see happen through paul's ministry as he first comes to philippi and the message of gospel is a simple message for all who would come and believe for anyone who would ask that question what must i do to be saved the answer is the same whether you're a rich wealthy woman by the river, whether you're a demon-possessed girl or a Philippian jailer, the answer is the same. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. This was the message that Paul preached all throughout Philippi, and as a result, a church was founded and formed in what would have been a very secular, pagan city. Philippi was actually modeled after Rome itself. It would have been Many Rome in a lot of ways. If you've been to Philippi and you've been to Rome, you would feel like you're somewhere else, right? That this this feels like Rome. And as a result, the culture would feel like Rome, very dark, very opposed to the things of God. And yet God is growing a church in the midst of this city through the ministry of Paul. And so this was Paul's personal connection to Philippi, that he personally was sent by God through a vision to these people, that he personally converted a number of people by preaching the good news, seeing them come to faith. And we know that this church that was started here involved meeting in people's homes and it's likely that Paul spent a number of days in, say, the home of of Lydia, who likely would go on to probably host this new church in her home for quite some time. The text says of the Philippian jailer that after he believed and was baptized that he hosted Paul and his friends in his home, they spent time with one another. And so Paul clearly helped them get established as a church, to, to grow as a church, and it sounds like they continued that even after he was called other places like Thessalonica. And so there, were, there was a deep sense of joy and affection towards these believers that Paul had because of his connection with them. And we could see it in the language that he speaks here. Paul refers to himself not as an apostle. He doesn't use a high, elevated title, but he calls himself a servant, a slave of Christ Jesus. And that's really what he did when he went to Philippi. He went there to serve them, not to be served by them. Even though he had authority, he did not exercise that authority in a way to benefit himself, but in a way to benefit them, being imprisoned and jailed for preaching the good news to them. He modeled that sort of servant leadership to Timothy as well, and all of that was first modeled by Christ himself. He calls these Philippians saints in Christ Jesus, which I love. We don't know their histories or their past, but knowing where they come from, knowing what that city would have been like, it is likely that they were very far from God that their sins had led them far astray. And yet, when they put their faith and trust in Christ, Paul could say confidently and truthfully, you are saints in the Lord Jesus Christ along with me. Even though you live in many Rome and are probably guilty of all forms of paganism and idolatry and debauchery, yet in Christ, you are saints. And it wasn't from their excellent behavior, it was because of their excellent savior that they all shared in. And it was through the washing of their sins in Christ. And so in verse 5, we see Paul say that they were partners in the gospel from the first day until now. That term partnership has this idea of fellowship, that they have fellowship with one another because of the gospel. They are made a family, brothers and sisters in Christ, that there is a deep connection that they share with one another. And so we must ask ourselves, what really unites people? What are friendships based on? Friendships are based on fellowship, what we have in common with one another. You know, I could meet somebody out at Orchard Park down the way and probably strike up a conversation about pickleball, and we could have fellowship talking about how much we love the game, what paddles we use, where do we like to play, what's your ranking, right? I could go on and on. If you guys know me, I can talk a lot about pickleball. And I have those whom I fellowship with over pickleball. You may have friends at work that you get along with at work, that they're your, maybe your best friend at work, that you can talk and get along and joke in the office about various things, talk about projects, be passionate about what you do, and you can have fellowship based on your work. But I don't know if this has ever happened to you. That person that you're really close with at work, if you've ever associated with them outside of work, or that person for me that I play pickleball with, but I associate with outside of playing pickleball, maybe you sit down for lunch one day and you find that, man, we're having a hard time finding something to talk about here. That that something is off. Our fellowship doesn't seem deep enough, meaningful enough to sustain maybe a 30 to 45 minute lunch in which we carry a conversation. This is awkward. That's happened to me before. You realize that your fellowship is not based on something deep enough, strong enough. But when your fellowship is based on your union with Christ, you have the deepest connection that you could really have with any other human being. If you're in Christ, then you can enjoy meaningful fellowship with other people who are in Christ. You can talk about him, You can worship him. You can pray for one another. Fellowship in Christ is the only fellowship that you and I will share with in eternity. I don't think there's gonna be office jobs in heaven or in the new heavens and new earth, maybe. There probably will be some pickleball, I hope. But more importantly, we will have fellowship because we are in Christ And that is what our eternity will be based off of. And Paul is showing us through his greeting to the Philippians how deep that fellowship meant to him. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. You are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. It is right for me to feel strong affection for you because together we are in Christ. What Paul is getting at here is what we want to get at here in our new church, is we want to build a strong sense of fellowship that's not just based on hobbies or interests, but that is based on our union with Christ. If you visited our our website, you've seen some of our core values, and one of those is biblical community. And I'm just going to read what we have written on there for just a moment. It says, "'We believe that the Christian faith is not meant to be a Lone Ranger experience.'" In fact, the gathering of believers and the building of close Christian relationships are essential in making disciples. We are convinced that the closer we become to one another, the closer we become to God. This is why Paul speaks so affectionately for these Philippians, because as he grew in fellowship and relationship with with them, they all grew in fellowship and relationship with Christ. Christ that this was a gospel-centered community. And so often as we seek to build fellowship as a church, we try to find common interests. There's a great book that talks about building biblical community that talks about two types of community that churches will build. And the first, which they don't speak too fondly of, is the gospel-plus community. And this is the community in which we're friends who have something in common who also happen to be Christians, okay? And so you may be friends, and your friendship is based on maybe your hobby, your interest, whether it be pickleball or technology or football, that you have this friendship based on these things, and you also happen to be Christians at the same time. Now, these things are bound to happen in a church, but we should strive for something deeper. And that deeper Relationship is what this author in this book calls gospel revealing community, in which it's very clear that the basis for your friendship is not some sort of hobby or interest, but it is Christ. And this is why the church could be so diverse. This is why the most Jewish man who probably living at the time could go to the most Roman city and reach people for Christ and have strong relationships with them because their fellowship was not based on their ethnicity, was not based on their interests, it was based on Christ. And that's what we want our fellowship to be based on here. We may find common interests, common homies, but what I hope is that we are willing to love those who are very different from us, because that person was bought by Jesus. And so my encouragement to you as as we are a young church, getting to know one another is to exercise hospitality. We saw this church in Philippi hosting people in their home. So I would encourage you as we share coffee, as we welcome each other here in this place week after week to find ways to connect outside of this place. Meet someone for coffee, invite someone into your home, have fellowship with them, even though they may be different from you because they are in Christ and you are in Christ with them as well. And if we do this, then we will all grow closer to Christ together. And we will share in that same joy that that Paul had, our union because of our faith in Jesus. And so that was our first point. Paul's joy came from, from their conversion. But secondly, we see Paul's joy comes from their partnership. And this is very key in this text look again at verse five with me. It says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, they partnered with Paul from the very beginning and they never stopped partnering with him in the efforts of helping Paul take the gospel to the ends of the earth. I talked about how that term partnership has this idea of fellowship, but it's also got um, some connotations of this, of this idea of a, of a business arrangement, that we are partners in a common endeavor, that we are co-laborers, co-workers towards this goal. And we see that the Philippians began partnering with the ministry of Paul right away. I mentioned how Lydia and the jailer hosted Paul in their homes. Remember, Paul had no place. There were not motels for him to check out and check into. And so Paul was dependent on the hospitality of those who would host him as he seeks to preach the good news of the gospel. And so Lydia was a host. The jailer was a host. It's likely that Lydia became, or her house probably became the location for the church in Philippi, being a wealthy woman who probably was the only one who had a house large enough to fit the saints that were in Philippi. We saw Paul write this letter and greet both overseers and deacons in verse 1. And you don't just appoint these people overnight. They grow into these roles and offices. And and it may be that that jailer may have grown into one of those offices of the church of serving as a deacon or serving as a jailer. Maybe that girl who was demon-possessed shared in the evangelistic ministry, as we so often see is the case when someone experiences miraculous healing in the gospels or even in in the book of Acts, that they often go out and they tell people and more are brought into the kingdom of God as a result the Philippians clearly partnered with Paul in the work of the gospel from the very first day, but even more so until now, that they never stopped, that as they were recruited for the work, they continued in the work, even in Paul's absence. And we learn about this in verse seven of Philippians. Paul says, it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart For you are all partakers with me of the grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. It's good for you to know that when Paul was writing this letter, he was in prison in Rome, chained to another guard. And he's saying that you, the Philippians, are under the same sort of pressures, the same sort of opposition that I face here in Rome. Remember, Philippi was often described as mini Rome. And so if Paul was experiencing imprisonment and having to defend the gospel where he was in actual Rome, we can expect the same experience to be the case over in mini-Rome, in Philippi. That they were under threat of imprisonment. That they had to make a strong defense for the gospel. And in so doing, they furthered their partnership with Paul. As we continue to read through the book of Philippians, we will see all the ways in which the Philippians partnered with the ministry of Paul and the ministry of the word of God. But I want to take a kind of sweeping overpass of some of these things because these these are some of the same ways that we want to see partnership happen here in our new church as well. Number one, the Philippians were partners for Paul in prayer as he was afflicted. We read in verse 19 of chapter 1, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. That the Philippians, as a young church, clearly were praying for Paul, his ministry as he was imprisoned in Rome. And Paul had confidence that God was using their prayers in mighty ways. Their partnership was seen in their suffering for their faith faith in Christ. We read this in chapter 1, verses 29 through 30. Paul writes, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now I hear that I still have. And so Paul prepared them. He was honest with them. Hey, this Christian life, it's not easy. You are going to experience persecution. Some of the same persecution that you're watching me go through, you are going to have to face as well. And yet they face face that Willingly and able, they shared in the sufferings for their faith in Christ. Thirdly, they were a radiant witness through their conduct and behavior. Chapter 2, verse 15, it says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Your good behavior, your obedience to God in Christ, shines a light to the truth of the gospel. They sent help and support to Paul, sending Epaphroditus. We read this in verse, or chapter 2, verses 28 through 30. Chapter, or verse 28, it says, "'I am the more eager to send him, "'therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again, "'that I may be less anxious.'" So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men for he nearly died for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Paul's in jail, unable to provide for himself and probably alone apart from his jailers, and so they sent a man, Epaphroditus from Philippi, to be with him, to encourage him and likely to supply his what he needs physically to continue on in his ministry, that there was partnership in even sending what you could call reinforcements to the effort. And lastly, the Philippians were known to give regular financial support to Paul and his ministry. We see this in chapter 4, verses 10 through 18. Paul, as he begins to conclude this letter, says, "'Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble.'" And pleasing to God. They partnered with Paul from the first day until now. They were one of the first to support him financially. Not that he sought the financial gain, but he sought the fruit of that financial support, that the gospel may go out. More churches could be started and more people could be brought to faith. And so, what I want us to see is that the gospel is not built just through one person or is not shared, or sent out just through one person. But it really is, for lack of a better term, a team effort. Paul, as amazing as he was, as winsome as he was, as intelligent as he was, as bold as he was, needed support. And I think that's why he was so grateful to the Philippians. You know, I'm reminded of a, of a good um, documentary series that I watched. Some of you have probably watched this Uh, yourself, but they did a a great documentary series on Michael Jordan um, on Netflix in the last few years of just kind of his entire career and particularly his six championships and how he got there. And it was clear at the start of Michael Jordan's career that he was the best player in the league, highest scorer, setting records, almost unstoppable, but yet could not win a championship for whatever reason until a particular coach began to teach him a few things. And that coach was Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson helped him understand that he could not win on his own. As good as he was, as amazing he was, they would never get all the way to a championship with just his skill alone. And Michael Jordan did not like Phil Jackson at first because he kept wanting him to pass the ball, pass the ball, pass the ball. But see, some of these teams had figured out that if you could just double team, triple team, take Michael Jordan out of the game, then then you could win. And so, in the 1991 NBA Finals, uh, Phil Jackson approached Michael Jordan, I think during halftime, and simply asked him, who is open? When you have the ball, who is open? And Michael finally said, Joe Paxson. And so, Michael began to pass the ball to Joe Paxson, who was left wide open because everybody was double or triple teaming Michael Jordan. And he went on to score 20 points that game, and they went on to win their first NBA title as a result. And so the idea here is, is it doesn't matter how amazing or gifted a particular person is, if we are out to win the world for Christ, to share the gospel, yes, it's nice to have a Michael Jordan on your team, and I think Paul counts as one of those but Paul still could not have done what he he did without the partnership, without the team effort that the Philippian church provided. Without the encouragement of Epaphroditus, without the prayers of this church as he was experiencing suffering, without the financial support, without their good witness to the gospel, he would not have been nearly as effective. And so I will ask you, if you would be willing to partner in the gospel with us. In the same ways that we see the Philippian church partner with Paul, will you pray for this church, for its people, for our ministry, and yes, even for me as its pastor? Will you be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel here in this area? If we're being serious about reaching people in this neighborhood and surrounding areas with the gospel, we know that there is going to be confrontation. There are going to be trials. And yes, maybe even spiritual warfare. Are you willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel in partnership together? Giving up some of your comforts or even your preferences when choosing to maybe fellowship other places as well. Are you willing to be a witness and speak of the wonderful good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ yourself? Will you share your faith regularly and live in a manner that helps bolster your testimony and not detract from it? Will you walk in righteousness and obedience as the Holy Spirit provides? Are you willing to be sent to do things that may make you uncomfortable or that may be difficult? Will you serve in leadership as this church grows? Will you host a Bible study in your home? Will you be willing to teach children or adults? And when the time comes, if the Lord blesses our ministry, would you even be willing to go and help start another new church in an area that needs one? Are you willing to give and to give regularly to the ministries of this church so that we may have more effective fruit because of our work in the gospel. I know I can't do it alone, and I know you can't do it alone, but together with God's spirit, as we submit to his will, I think he can do great things through this church for his kingdom in this area. And so Paul's joy was in their partnership from the first day until they never stopped that very day. And so lastly, we see Paul's joy come from their continual growth as well. They're growing in holiness and Christ-likeness. I find it interesting that of all the, the letters that Paul wrote, this is the only one that has in its address overseers and deacons. It's likely that Paul was very proud of the fact that this young church, small church, whatever it was in Philippi, had gotten to the point that it had raised up other leaders, other pastors, others that could shepherd the flock that was among them. And so he mentions them. This letter is for the church in Philippi, but also for the overseers and the deacons, that they are growing in the gospel. They are becoming a mature and healthy church. Because as, as a, a teacher of the gospel, as a planter of the church, this is something that we should strive for, that we would appoint overseers and deacons. Paul tells Timothy to do this very thing in 2 Timothy 2.2. He says this to this young pastor, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so this is what we wanna do, just as we saw the Philippian church, that we want to raise up faithful men who will be able to teach God's word and shepherd this flock with us. And it's an evidence of their growth. He mentions that their partnership was from the first day until now, meaning that there are still signs and evidences of growth continuing on. And Paul prays for more and more and more growth in their life. And this is where we get to verses nine through 11 through this wonderful prayer for this church on Paul's behalf. He says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. They demonstrated this love, but he prays all the more that you would grow in this. You know, love is interesting. One commentator I read said, love is never static. It is either increasing or decreasing. And so Paul is praying that their love would not decrease, but that it would increase all the more for Christ, their Savior, for the brothers and sisters, one another, that they would grow all the more in love. Similarly, he prays for more and more knowledge. He says, It's my prayer that your love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. The idea here is that the more we know about God, the more we're able to increase in our love of him as well. One of the ways we grow in love is by growing in knowledge. If you are married, you maybe have experienced this. That as you've gotten to know your spouse more and more, you find things, you notice things, even to this day, whether you've been married five years, 10 years, 20 years, that there's things that you learn. And as a result of learning them, you grow more and more. And your growing knowledge demonstrates your growing love as well. It's one thing to to husbands go and, and buy flowers for your wife, right? That's a demonstration of our love but a demonstration of your growing knowledge and your growing love is not just to go and buy flowers, but to go and buy their favorite flowers, right? Because your knowledge of who that person is, what they like, demonstrates your growing love. And that is what Paul is praying for here, that your knowledge and your love of God would grow more and more. And that you would be filled with the fruit of righteousness, Verse 10, so that you may be approving of what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. The fruit of righteousness, quite honestly, we could just read from Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit, that we are growing in Christ's likeness. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Against such things, there is no law. We as God's people should be growing in these fruits and thus becoming more like Christ. But this is a process. This growth is slow. It's arduous. It can be painful at times. And that's why he's encouraged by them and encouraging to them to continue on in this. And one of the encouragements that Paul gives for this church that has already encouraged him because of their faithful witness, their faithful showing of the fruits of their faith is that God is a finisher of his good work. Go back up with me to verse six. Paul writes, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That as you seek to grow in love and knowledge and righteousness and fruits, God is going to do this work and he will not leave this work unfinished. He sent Paul to preach the good news here. That good news was received by those. It's being lived out by those there. And Paul is saying that God is going to finish this work. He acknowledges himself later, later in Philippians that he's not finished. I have a long way to go, Chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, he says, "'Not that I have already obtained this "'or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own "'because Christ Jesus has made me his own. "'Brothers, I do not consider myself "'that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, "'forgetting what lies behind "'and straining forward to what lies ahead, "'I press forward toward the goal of the prize "'of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. "'Let those of us who are mature think this way, "'and if in anything you think otherwise, "'God will reveal that to you also.'" You are a work in progress, but God will not leave you unfinished. And that is the good news. You'll either be finished when you go home to be with him, or, as it says, the day of Christ. He mentions it in chapter 1, verse 6, and chapter 1, verse 10. It's such good news that God is, is a finisher of his work. I don't know if you share in this, but, but if you ask me and... You ask my wife, I, I'm not a good finisher. I'm really not. We bought a home about six years ago that was a fixer-upper, and we took on a lot of different projects. We moved walls, we painted, we, we redid things, and, and there's parts that I, that I really like. I mean, the knocking down of walls is, is pretty fun. You know, the, the painting when you have a nice big spray paint gun, that, that's kind of fun. But when you get to the little things, you know, the caulking of the trim, the painting of the trim, Finishing rooms that nobody really goes in, like the laundry room, we can leave that one for later. Later's been like four years now, okay? But I'm, I'm not a good finisher. That there are things that I, that I leave undone. That I know that my wife probably wishes that I, that I would indeed finish. And there have probably been times both her and myself have kind of given up hope that these things will just never be done because I just don't have it in me to do it. And we may be tempted to think, that because we get overwhelmed with how much work it is or how meticulous it is, that God may view us that way. He's done some of the big things in our life. There's some big sins or some big things that, that He's done, but these little things that I'm like, ah, oh, will I ever be done with this? Is God gonna give up like I give up on different projects? No, He will not. God is a finisher and you are His work. And he has promised that if he began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. It's as sure as when Jesus on the cross said, it is finished, that your sins were paid for, that he will also one day present you in radiance and glory before the Father in heaven, because he is a finisher. So let us not lose hope in the work that is yet to still be done both in this community, but maybe even in our own lives, knowing that there's a lot that God needs to do in my life. Do not lose hope. Christ will finish his work, and he will send others here, brothers and sisters in Christ, to encourage you, to help you, and to bless you. Let us persevere that because of this great work that that God is doing, in our lives, that the result would not be praise and glory for ourselves, but as we read at the very end of verse 11, that the glory and the praise go to God for what he has done and is doing. And when we do this, we will share in that joy, same joy that Paul had. And so as we conclude, let us look at these particular joys once again, that Paul had a particular joy from this church because of the fellowship they had in Christ, because of their shared faith in Jesus, their conversion, because of their partnership in the work of the gospel as it was demonstrated through prayer, through giving, through sending, through um, acts of service, through willing to, to suffer alongside Paul in defense of the gospel. And the shared joy of continued growth, in each of our lives, pursuing of righteousness, seeing the fruits of the Spirit and God work through each and every one of us. I pray, and I'm seeing that prayer already fulfilled in a lot of ways, that I will share in many of the joys that Paul shared with this Philippian church, that we'll see people come to Christ here, that we'll have fellowship with, that together we'll be partners in ministry, and that together we will grow in our faithfulness to the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for Paul's word to this Philippian church. God, that they were a church known for their fellowship with one another, Lord, known for their partnership in the gospel, and known in many ways for their obedience to you, that their conduct did not detract from the ministry of your word, but if anything, helped strengthen it. Lord, we pray these same things over our church here, Harvest Liberty Lake Church. God, that you would use this fellowship of believers here to reach new people with, with the gospel, that we would share in deep fellowship with one another. Lord, and that you would grow us more into the image of your son, bearing more and more of the fruits of the Spirit, growing in more love and more knowledge and more discernment. Only you can do these things, Lord, and so it's in your name we pray. Amen.